This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show. You can listen live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1. Download the Times Radio app, listen online, ask your smart speaker, or just twiddle with your DAB radio in your car or in your kitchen. Or even better still, do it if you're in someone else's car or kitchen, and then break the knob off. Right, coming up on today's episode, Keir Starmer says he's going to not just stop the boats, but smash the gangs. We ask... Will his plan work? And is it smart politics to try and fight the Tories on their turf? That's coming up in our big thing. Keir Starmer's been speaking to Times Radio about that. Before that, though, let's ask, what do you do when you've got a load of former Prime Ministers hanging about with these two? Manveen Rana and someone called Matthew on Times Radio. And they're both here. And even better than that, there's a box of donuts here, <laughs> thanks to Marvin. <laughs> we like it when you come in, Marvin. Oh, I'm so glad. I'm so glad. Uh, maybe it'll be a new record. Did you bring them? Do you think yeah, mm, and Matthew wonderful. Matthew was a bit late getting here, but he he still managed to get a donut on the <laughs> yes. way. How are you? Well, I've just managed to swallow. Yeah, right. in, order, in order to tell you that I'm very well. <laughs> good, 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 genuinely record breaking. Nice to have you. Uh, good to have you both here. Now, um, I want to talk about backseat drivers mm. uh, because. You know, you wait You wait for one former Prime Minister to come along and three come along at once. So you've got Boris Johnson writing in The Spectator today, accusing Rishi Sunak and other leaders, uh, world leaders, of dragging their feet over supplying weapons to Ukraine. You've got Tony Blair uh, in an interview with the FT this week said he would not be a backseat driver for Keir Starmer. Uh, you've got Theresa May still going around saying her Brexit deal would have been better than uh, anything. Um, which is all a bit retro. What should Rishi Sunak... What, should we take any notice of the former Prime Minister's Manvee? Um, I mean, it's quite entertaining, isn't it? Most of them sort of avoided the microphone or avoided the, the, the press as much as they could while they were in power, and suddenly they all want the, they want to have the moment where they can finally say what they've always thought. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know how much this is actually going to affect Rishi Sunak. I think it must be very annoying, the Boris Johnson piece. I think the Boris Johnson piece must be very annoying for a number of people, to be honest. Um, the I mean, not, the not, Daily Mail being one I was going to say, not least, <laughs> not least the people who are paying him a fortune for a column at the Daily Mail, and he goes and puts this in The Spectator. Yeah. Um, but, you know, to actually 
to, to, to say that Sunak is dragging his feet, there is a convention with former prime ministers where even if you are going to criticise what's happening, you do it obliquely. You do it in a way yeah. where you're criticising the principle. You don't name people and say you're dragging your feet. Uh, I sort of think he's doing this because he's a historian, right? And he sort of, he, he's rewriting the, the, this version of history so that when people look back, they'll say he was the one always pushing forward. Yeah. Whereas, oh. you know, the Sunday Times, the Insight team did a great investigation where they showed he'd ignored pleas from Ukraine for, an, for an, a number of years for weapons. And then since then, one of the reasons it's been so hard to provide them is because the defence budget we has been so depleted. Yeah, we didn't have the stuff to, to Yeah, to so this yeah. is a great way now, retrospectively, of sort of saying, I've always said, I don't know why we're waiting so long. You're too kind to call him a historian. He's an attention seeker. <laughs> and he's been out of the limelight uh, for a little while. And, and he's got a cheek. Uh, the, the thing is not led by Rishi Sunak anyway. It's led by the United States. If he wants to criticise the United States, who have contributed far more than us. Let him say so. Britain's contribution is relatively small and it has continued along the lines uh, that, it, that, that it was in when he was Prime Minister. Mm. I mean, he crashed the car. T- telling the next person how to drive doesn't, doesn't strike me as, um, as, as good form. Well, in fact, talking of crashing the car, the one that I forgot, who has been out about it this week as well, is Liz Truss. Yes. yes. You know, we've, we've promised a book. <laughs> yes, yes, we can't wait, Ironically. can we? No, no. So, you know, when you ask, should prime ministers be backseat drivers? I think it rather depends who the prime minister is and whether they made a success of the job mm. themselves. I am interested in Tony Blair's uh, opinions. I'm interested in John Major's opinions. I'm not interested in Boris's opinions. <laughs> is that just because you like and agree with the first two and not the last one? Well, I often. Very much disagreed with Tony Blair, especially over Iraq. But that's a person of substance who's who's thought hard about this, who still has an institute, who's still doing research, and his opinions are worth listening to. It was interesting, actually. Last night I caught up with, um, he was on the show earlier in the week, Michael Cockrell, BBC4, re-showing some of his old documentaries with a new sort of introduction. I was watching the Ted Heath one last night. Because uh, that's just how I like to spend my evenings. <laughs> um, and, but it was fascinating that, that just that reminder of his, you mm. know, the incredible sulk and his rivalry with yeah. with Margaret Thatcher, and never really getting over that. Um, uh, and you, you can see that Boris Johnson. If I remember, I think, I think Rishi Sunak's got two versions. He's of got that. he's got quite a lot of them. <laughs> yeah, yes. sort of hanging about. In fact, because I remember uh, Nick Timothy came on the show and said that Theresa May had to be careful that she didn't become Ted Heath in a dress. <laughs> which was, that was when she was constantly needling what Boris an Johnson. Image. What yeah. an appalling thought and on so many levels. <laughs> <laughs> well, though I think some of her speeches from the back benches have been very powerful, actually, yeah. and sort of have have sort of shaped the debate more than she did when she was running the show. Yeah. Well, that's the problem, isn't so it? So I'm not is sure the, I'd, the, I'd want her to stop those. It is a really hard balance to strike. Including David Cameron originally said he was going to stay in the Commons and lasted about two months before. I just can't sit here and not say say anything, but was so committed to the idea that you didn't say anything and hasn't really done mm. ever since, criticised mm. any of them uh, in any significant way. Um, we don't know what to do with them once they've yeah. been Prime Minister, it's and so it's no surprise they don't know what to do with themselves either. <laughs> I think with Theresa May, the reason she does those interventions, it's all down to conscience, and finally she can say what she really thinks. Um, but, you know, I think it is a perennial problem. If you look at America, you know, Jimmy Carter couldn't sort of stop being president so he'd go around trying to fix the middle east in yeah. later years which i think it was actually probably quite useful for a lot of the people who followed because they didn't have to they didn't have to be seen in those places so well, much. i suppose because they were head of state in america yeah they, they there's a sort of they're an adornment to the yeah. country in that we in a way that we don't even think of the prime ministers when they're in that job 
in the same way, that sort of status. There would be an understanding in the United States that an ex-president doesn't go for the jugular mm. of the sitting president. The sitting president has a kind of dignity of the office for exactly yeah. the reason that you say they're the head of state. So ex-presidents tend to do helpful things rather than carp from the sidelines. Yeah, yeah. But actually, there's something about Theresa May's book that they're just listing all the things that weren't fixed while during her decade in power. Mm. Feels a bit mm. rich. <laughs> yes. Well, just a little bit late. Yeah. A little bit late. Oh, if only somebody done it's, something I know, about that. I know. All those burning injustices still burning. Still burning. Uh, anyway, if you want more of that, uh, Theresa May is on with Ruth Davidson <laughs> uh, tomorrow afternoon. Th- Friday afternoon uh, from, uh, from one o'clock. Um, so we'll come for, back and heckle from the side. Yeah, heckle from the side. Amazingly, not doing my show. Uh, right, uh, let's move on and talk about uh, some live policy rather than the, the backbench drivers. Uh, Labour peers last night blocked a move by ministers to ease river pollution rules to boost house building. We've all become experts in uh, nitrate neutrality. In the was it called? Is it nitrate? Nutrient, nutrient neutrality. Not that neutrality. expert. Um, uh, <laughs> Michael Gove accused Keir Starmer of destroying the dream of home ownership. Uh, Labour said that you can build houses without putting more muck in the rivers. Um, Who's going to be on the right side in the end on this one, do you think? Oh, there's no doubt at all that the uh, government got itself on the wrong side. It it made this amendment very late in the day, kind of on a Tuesday afternoon during the recess, uh, when the bill had almost passed all its stages and and the amendment if you if you read it I, I wrote a whole Saturday column about this uh, I'm afraid I'm a bit of a bore on the subject but the the amendment uh, is it, it is quite ludicrous it basically says that pollution doesn't mean pollution if it if it comes from new housing uh, the the idea that housing is going to be blocked on a large scale is is wrong house builders are not blocked from building in places where they might contribute to environmental pollution but they are obliged to show how they will mitigate perhaps by paying money to um, you know english nature or 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 building new or paying helping with the construction of new sewage works so so the the house builders don't actually have to do anything they 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 probably just have to pay into a market that was developing for mitigations. And for some reason, Michael Gove just ploughed it all up at the last moment. I don't know why. And it's the last-minute nature of it, the, the, the fact that they tried to stick it in at the last minute, and now it's been thrown out, so they can't do it again because the bill's gone through. So it's not even a sort of well-thought-out policy. It's a terrible strategy. Yeah. Now, now it's gone, and gone for good, hopefully. Yeah. Um, I mean, I thought it was really interesting. You know, his, his, Michael Gove's big grandiose speech about this now ruining, shattering the dreams of, of so many across the country who won't get a house as a result of it. Whereas actually, you know, as Michael says, it should mean that they get a house that's just a little bit more environmentally friendly. Um, you know, I think a lot of people have sort of said, in the greater scheme of things, farming is contributing much more to river pollution. Um, you know, let the house builders get away with it. But I think if you are talking about which side of, of history were they going to be on... <laughs> Uh, I can't help thinking Labour got it right on this. And actually, you know, the most damning speech in that debate came from a former Tory environment minister, which was incredibly strong, was sort of... Um, I, oh, I think it was Lord, Lord Deepen. Oh, yes. Who, John who, Gummer, yeah, yeah. Yeah, who sort of who, who came out and pointed out this was a terrible piece of legislation. This would lead to far... You know, the biggest problem that a lot of people have been complaining about, the state of our rivers, would only get worse deliberately and you know this legislation would be in play for a very long time it just yeah, seems yeah. completely mad this is also something matthew that not just they got the policy wrong which is obviously you know what the debate was about but also the politics that a time when 
the Lib Dems' entire election strategy seems to be talking about poo in rivers. Um, and that seems to be playing very well. That The salience of this as an issue is very high. And this idea that as a metaphor for Britain, you know, the rivers all being full of poo is, you know, just about sums it all up. To then go and find a whole new uh, problem, you know, issue on exactly that. So we want to put more stuff in the rivers. It, it's just bad politics. Absolutely right. I mean, this it would be populist politics of the better kind uh, to act on things like river pollution because people are bothered about it. I think the Conservative Party is... In its head, there's a general public that doesn't exist anymore. There's a general public that hates all the green crap, as as, uh, David Cameron once called it, that uh, doesn't like all this uh, bunny-hugging stuff and uh, and is on the whole just in favour of ripping ahead with uh, as much house-building as you can get. I don't think that that Britain exists anymore. And I see it in my readers of my column because, as I say, I wrote about this. I had about a thousand comments and three quarters of Times readers were were, uh, against the the idea of ripping up these environmental rules. And, And Michael Gove, in a very fine speech he made, I think in about 2018, promised that there would be no drawing back from the level of protection within the European Union. It was going to be a Brexit bonus that we could enhance, not draw back. Yeah. And now he's drawn back. And I tried to. Because it's such a... Well, it's already a difficult sell for them. You know, it's worth polluting the rivers because we're going to build more houses. Because the, 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 feels like the public is so tired of the Tory government, they don't get the benefit of the doubt. Mm. It's such a hard mm. sell. The, the, the people just think, well, surely it's possible to build houses without polluting rivers. You know, we just don't buy the idea. This is the only thing that's, that's yeah. going wrong. Well, also, there's just there's that sort of, where, this is us ripping up former EU legislation. Yeah. Yes. You know, that's what, what meant that the neutrant, neutral, yeah. neutrality thing was so important. So, you know, this is a, a Brexit bonus, but it's mm. not going to happen. And I think actually, you know, what Matthew was saying is really interesting. It is about sort of the Tories working out who their core voters are. And, you know, in the past... It, it, you would assume it would have been, um, you know, a, a lot of the places where the Lib Dems are doing very well yeah. now, you know, it would have been the Guildfords, it would have been, you know, the country. They, if you go to the, to, the, to the country, they don't love the idea of having, um, you know, poo and, poo and rivers. So it just feels like they're, they're trying to work out who their constituents are now. And I, I get the feeling they're going to end up alienating a lot of the people who would have voted for them in the past without necessarily finding a replacement as they did with Red Wall. Yeah. Well, exactly, and just appealing to an ever, ever smaller group of people. Yeah. The people who still think Brexit was a good idea and is going well, and therefore isn't it great that we've torn up this so we can pollute the rivers. But also sort of think so climate change isn't really a thing. small Venn diagram, that one. Green councillors were elected in the local mm. elections in my constituency in Derbyshire, what was my constituency <laughs> in Derbyshire. But always and, will uh, be in the hearts <laughs> of the people of... Uh, <laughs> My patch, Bill yes. Patch. But, but it, a, a more conservative part of England you cannot imagine. Mm. And it was not on Labour or Liberal Democrat votes that those Green councillors alone were elected. Yeah. Let me just tell you about something which happened four weeks. It's only four weeks ago. Till the, uh, the Cheltenham uh, Literary, Literature Festival. Uh, we are going to be there live on Friday, October the 13th. Uh, we're doing the show live. You can come and see us. Uh, we are asking, what year is it? 
not because we don't know, but which political year is it? 1997, 1992, Uh We've got a cracking panel on the Times Radio debate. We've got uh, Kate McCann, our political editor, Patrick McGuire, Aisha Hazarika, and Professor John Curtis, the uh, the pollster. So if you want to come and see us live, just go to cheltenhamfestivals.com, search my name or something. I'm doing loads of stuff there. Possibly also talking about my book, which is out four, four weeks today. But I don't want to go on about that. Uh, but if you want to get tickets to come and see us live, go online and do that. Right. Uh, now, uh, I'm still joined by Matthew Paris and Manveen uh, Rana here in the studio. So, Manveen and Matthew, let's do this. Record breaker If you're the tallest, the smallest, if you beat them all. If you're the fattest, the thinnest, if you always win. If you're the fastest, the slowest, if you really go, then you're a record breaker. Yeah, so the 2024 edition of Guinness World Records is out today with two and a half thousand new records made this year. Greg Glenday is the editor-in-chief who joins us. Hi, Greg. Hello, good morning. Now, it's very exciting because we've got a record breaker in the studio. The, the ah, yeah. Ma- Matthew Parry. I don't know, actually, I assume it's probably not in the book, but Matthew, what's the record that you hold? Um, I am the fastest member of Parliament ever to run the or the uh, London Marathon, but by an hour, actually, so I'm I'm, I'm rather proud of that one. I'm still <laughs> baffled. Did you cheat? Did no. you have, like, a moped? No, I or trained, a... Matthew, I trained. You trained? Yes. Well, very good. <laughs> Mamby, do you hold any records? N- no, Right, certainly. well, let's... Craig is going to maybe give us some ideas of oh, things that you could try to do. Great. Well, because I, I, I was that part of that generation that watched record breakers record and record wanted breakers. to break one, but by the age of eight, I knew I wasn't going to be the tallest person in the world. Yeah. Oh. Well, maybe you oh. could have the longest hair. hair. Oh, no, because that's of a teenager. Uh, <laughs> Craig, take us through some of the new records in the book this year. Um, yeah, we've had a huge, um, you know, vast spectrum of claims this year. Some of the most fun ones, I think, things like the largest collection of Care Bears. Uh, so we have a guy who was... <laughs> hang on, um, whoa, 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 let's, let's look at that. How many do you think are in a large collection of Care Bears, Matthew? 3,220. Who 3, still has Care Bears? <laughs> How many do you think, Manly? Um, uh... I, th- I mean, they're quite big. Uh, uh, Nine hundred. <laughs> okay, quite. Split, split the difference. It's one thousand two hundred and thirty-four. Oh, um, oh but I think he changed his name. Where That's right. He changed his name to Nicholas Cherrywood, who's one of the Care Bear characters because he's such a fan of the brand. Um, <laughs> so we were very happy to go and meet him, take his photograph, get him, get his bears counted. Now, um, is that a new well, entry because no one else has previously done this before? So, by dint of being the first person to contact you and you not be able to find anyone else, you automatically get in? Yeah, last week, could you have won with five? <laughs> yeah, well, no. no. <laughs> so, yes, it's a new record, but um, if, if there's a new category created, we have a minimum, we set a minimum. Collections, for example, tend to be 500 is the minimum you need to prove that you've got enough to make it worth our while coming to count. Um, so over a thousand is lovely. If you said five, we would have just yeah. politely said, go away. Um, but yes, we've got longest hair on a teenager, as you said. Yeah, this is another good, I like this guessing game. You can go first on this. How long is the longest hair on a teenager? Uh, I actually don't know, so I could join in. A, a metre. A metre? No, that's fine. No, yeah. that's what you're going for, man. A metre. Uh, I'm going to say five metres. I'm going to say five feet. (laughs) So again, you're somewhere in between. Yes, remember this is a teenage boy. Um, It's four foot three, so 130 centimetres, so 1.3 metres. Oh, Um, there we are. You were very close. Sorry, I thought thought a metre was ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) You've never tried to grow hair, have you? (laughs) 
I did have a mullet once, but it wasn't a metre long. Oh, good God. Yeah. Oh, and we have long. mullet records. With this year, for the first time, we opened the mullet category. Right. Mullet I discovered category. there was a mullet world championships. Uh, in fact, there are more than one world championships in mullets, but the biggest one is in the USA. And we found an amazing lady called Tammy. And she, well, how, how long do you think her party in <laughs> the on, back? This is, this an is something you know. This is an adult. But this is my area of expertise. an adult woman yeah, who's got a party in the back that says, how long do you think? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I'm uh, three metres, I'm going to go. <laughs> the longest hair was a metre. I oh, know, but that was a teenager. Oh, okay. So she's got an adult lifetime of growing it. <laughs> and, and it falling out. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm going to buy three. No. No, go on, Matthew. Well, we have a male and a female category a man as well. So, yeah. uh, two feet. Two, two, your determination to stick with the Imperials. Impressive. Yeah, no, I love it. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm going to go for, um, for half a metre. Yeah, okay, do it in furlongs. Oh, wow. Okay. Oh, come on. Well, I think Matthew really close. is five foot eight. Five foot eight? Uh, well, so 172 centimetres. Exactly, yes. So it's now trailing along the ground oh for this God. woman. Um, a mullet as long as Matthew Paris. I know. Yes. <laughs> the hair as in not the fish. Uh, yes. Um, um, uh, uh, and are there um, any non-hair-based uh, new records in the book, Greg? Um, yeah, we've got things like um, people who build houses of cars, a very old-school, classic. Classic. Um, classic That's proper record-breakers territory, isn't it? Exactly. You were talking about record breakers that had the theme tune there. If I had a pound for every time that was played. You, can't, you um, must be sick of it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bit sick of it, yes. Could you, Passels, could you enter Roy the book Passels. for holding the record for the person who's heard the theme tune to Record Breakers the most? <laughs> uh, probably not, no. We could, re- reject that. We reject about 95% of what we receive, to be honest. So, um, could, we wow. would, could I claim a record for having bored newspaper readers with regular columns for longer than any other columnist in in uh, in journalism. Well, bo- boring is uh, it's far too subjective. Subject- I wouldn't uh, say that. Yes. But, I mean, as boring as your columns are, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> so you're not claiming to be the longest... You must, you must have a long-serving columnist category. There ought to be, yes. 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 Uh, we do, yeah. We have things like longest-serving editor, uh, longest-serving columnist, oldest columnist, hmm. people who are still into the hundreds. Oh, no. Um, You've got a little while so, to go, yeah. yeah. Got a while to go, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. What about any, any radio-related things? Could I try and get in the... In, if I wanted... Oh, to... How long well, would you have to continuously f- broadcast? Oh, yes, yes, that's a good one. How long would I have to be on the radio for? Red- well, I think we're now in talking multiple days. Oh. Um, so, like, um, you know, up to five or six days. Um, let me just what, check. Non-stop? Non-stop. Well, you're allowed to have a break. We, for every hour you broadcast, you can accrue a five-minute break <laughs> just just for sort of decency. I mean, the longest radio interview, just the interview, one interview was 25 hours uh, non-stop. Yeah. That, was, that was last year, was in that fact. That Theresa May. Grind out a news line. <laughs> um, we, we, yeah, so it's um, it's a it's a it's a, you're, you're bedded in for quite a long time. I mean, yeah, that, yeah. I, I think, think the last I've... time we saw this was 121 hours uh, with not as a non-stop broadcast. So I think I might I get mean, that. Matt, if you want to do this, we'll bring you the coffee. Is, and the yeah, yeah, is, yeah. Does Liz Truss get in? As uh, shortest-serving well, we, prime minister. Well, we don't do UK. I mean, in the old, in the very old days, we used to do UK records and world records. Um, and now we only look at world records because otherwise we'd have to look at every country. Uh, uh, yeah. It just becomes very, um, it just becomes an impossible task. So uh, we were oh, watching please. it all with great, um, with, with great amusement to see if there could be any 
um, world record in this, but no, there are. I think there are leaders of countries that come and go within minutes often. Uh, <laughs> yeah. so, so she wasn't uh, even world beating yeah. in that. <laughs> no, exactly. Craig, of all of the uh, records in the book, which is the one that you'd like to have? Oh, um, oh, I don't know. That's a very good question. Um, I mean, I quite happily t- tackle being the richest person. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yes. I've always uh, quite fancy going into space. So I've been trying to court Richard Branson and Musk and all that lot to, to, to give me a seat on one of these things, but I'm not, I can't pay for it yeah. myself. So, no. uh, but I'd happily go up to adjudicate a record. So maybe you had, had William Shatner up on one of them as the oldest man. Oh yeah. yeah. Well, William Shatner is now the oldest man in space. Oldest amazingly. man in space. There we are. Um, but oh. um, they wouldn't let me sit next to him to adjudicate. So. I want to be the first gay man on the moon. Manveen Rana and Matthew Powerstone. Of course, you can listen to Manveen on the Stories of Our Times podcast, wherever you get your podcasts from, probably wherever you're listening to this. Or you can read Matthew Powerstone in the Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, will Keir Starmer's plan stop the boats? 
um, and involving a huge amount of money that is being made by these gangs that are driving this vile trade. Now, that is not unique because you have similar operations when it comes to terrorism, um, ammunition and mm -hmm. guns being sent across borders, human trafficking, particularly of women being exploited yeah. for sex. So you, we have, or there are examples of how these gangs can be smashed. And so what I want to see is a new security uh, agreement with Europe um, where we can work with our partners in Europol and Eurojust with a cross-border police unit. So, Kate, let's um, unpack some of that. Smashing the gangs is a, you know, and he was leaning into his sort of history direct public prosecutions, likening mm -hmm. smuggling gangs to terrorists. But alongside a sort of a legal thing, alongside a closer alignment essentially with the EU. That's exactly it. And it's the major point of difference between what the Tories are promising and what Labour are now suggesting. Essentially, Labour are removing this element of deterrent or changing it. I put that to Keir Starmer and he said, you know, actually the best deterrent is to smash the gangs. And he sees this legal route as the answer because the Rwanda policy isn't actually in operation yet. And even when and if it is, lots of experts don't believe it's really going to stop people making those choices because they're so desperate to, to cross the channel. So Keir Starmer's proposal is to take it much more seriously to treat people smugglers and those who are buying dinghies, selling them, using them in the same way that you would other organised crime. I think there are some complications with that. It's very easy to get dinghies, very easy to move them across uh, you know, Europe to put people in them. The UK government is already working with France, paying French police to patrol. We're already in some of those control centres and we already do share data in real time. So this is an extension of those things. I think the bigger question, though, for, for Keir Starmer, he's trying to trade on this idea that he's a legal expert and he understands it, but most people's actual sort of lived experience and the emotional reaction to this issue, that doesn't really satisfy. And I think that's where you're starting to see the disconnect yeah. today. The other thing, thing is, it, it sounds so obvious that you would treat the trafficking gangs like... Mm. Like you said, the government's sort of half doing it already. If it was that straightforward, they'd have done it. It's not like a lack of... In, interest and enthusiasm for doing something. No, although I think Labour's, Labour's suggestion is the government isn't putting enough time and effort and money in yeah. that direction. And there's certainly more that could be done. But the National Crime Agency itself has said that the problem with people smuggling gangs is that they're often low-level people and there are lots and lots of them. So one, when you get rid of one person, another one pops up yeah. to take their place. Now, what Keir Starmer is proposing is to tackle the bigger people in those gangs. But they won't necessarily be in this country. They may well move around. They could be hard to prosecute and ultimately hard to stop because yeah. they'll just pass that business on to somebody else. I mean, the reality is this problem is very difficult to solve yeah. and people want to hear honest explanations and that's when you get into this conversation about, well, will the UK accept more migrants as and a result the of this? Yeah, the, the trade -off. Well, you know, he also said, like you were saying, that he, he would scrap the Rwanda policy, mm. not least because it is currently not working. So you asked him what uh, the deterrent would be instead. The deterrence is that the gang is taken out because it's the gangs that are pushing this and running it. Very many people are uh, spending a lot of money uh, uh, spent on these gangs that are telling them and controlling what they do. Yeah. So the best deterrence you can have is to take the gangs down. And that would be enough? Well, it would be a massive step in the right direction. Yeah. If you compare it to what was happening a number of years ago where lorries were being used, uh, where people were jumping on trains, um, you can see that if you yeah. take effective action, um, you can actually deal with this problem. Isn't the reality here that, in truth, the quickest way to solve this problem would be to set up safe and legal routes? Will you just be honest with people and say, we let more people in, we stop the gangs, 
but under Labour, net migration goes up. No, under Labour, we get control of this situation. At the moment, we've got the appalling situation where we are not deciding, as a country who's coming uh, to the UK, the gangs are deciding. That is fundamentally wrong. Um, one of the uh, let's just listen to Kate to some of the uh, the response from uh, the government today. Steve Barclay, the health secretary, was on Times Radio uh, this morning giving his response to what Keir Starmer had been saying. What Keir Starmer is proposing is the opposite. It's getting rid of the deterrent of the Rwanda policy. It's letting the EU decide the quotas of what the UK uh, would take, and that is giving up control of our immigration policy. Now, one of the things that came to mind, Kate, was that back in the summer uh, the Times, Dathan reported that Britain was trying to negotiate its own deal with the EU on uh, migrant returns and it had been rejected. So, you know, and that would probably have involved a, a bit of give and take in terms of numbers. Well, I think the reason it probably was rejected is that this government wasn't willing to yeah. go down that route. And that's the dividing line now between Labour and the Conservatives. What's really interesting in both of those clips is that both men, Keir Starmer and Steve Barclay for the government, are talking about control. They use that word, control. And the reason for that is when you look at the polling on immigration, people are not necessarily too upset about the idea of people arriving and living in the UK legally. But what they want to understand is how it's going to be controlled. The government's answer to that is to stop all illegal migration or to try to and not to set up safe and legal routes. They're, they're very clear on the numbers question. Yeah, yeah. For Labour, the control is different. The control is about stopping gangs having the power in this equation. And you get the impression that they are more willing to have those routes and those returns accepting people. I think they're basing that on the fact that people in this country, when they are asked, are generally reasonably open to immigration. But that won't make the political argument yeah easier at a general election because you are already seeing we're on day one of Labour's immigration policy official that argument about oh well Keir Starmer wants to give back control to Europe yeah, yeah. You, you went through Brexit for this and now he's giving back control yeah, yeah. the exact really opposite of the that. promise and that's going to be quite hard for them to counter oh we'll dig into some of the politics in a bit with, uh, with actually a former advisor to Keir Starmer but Kate really good to see you Kate we can uh, Times Radio's political editor who's been speaking to Keir Starmer about his plans well will they work Let's try and get our heads around it. John Vine is a former Chief Inspector of Borders and Immigration and joins us now. Hi, John. Hi. Hi, Matt. Uh, How are you? I'm very well. I'm very well. Based on what you've heard and seen about what Keir Starmer is saying, is he likely to have any more success in the, the primary aim, which everyone uh, seems to have, of stopping as many people coming across the channel in small boats? Uh, well, no, because I haven't heard any of the detail about how this is going to be implemented. I mean, the what is... You know, the same as, um, as as what the Conservative government at the moment wants to achieve. They want to break the uh, criminal gangs. There have been numerous initiatives over the last few years under uh, the former Prime Minister Theresa May and her successors about doing this. Money has been allocated to the French to help us deal with uh, the migrants on the beaches in northern France. Uh, but none of that has actually uh, worked in the way that the government uh, would like to have seen. And uh, so I've not heard anything from the Labour Party at the moment which tells me what is actually going to be different in the way they tackle this issue. Uh, and um, uh, at the moment, uh, we'll wait that detail, I think. Is there a, an element, John, that, that actually this, this issue of the number of people coming across uh, the channel is just a very visible uh, example of something that has actually been happening for a long time and because other routes have been closed down that people smuggle themselves into the UK 
on uh, the train, the Eurostar, or or in the backs of lorries and so on. Those have been really tightly controlled. Anyone who's been through Calais knows that. And that actually, this is just an issue which has gone on for a long time. There will always be people who try to get into the country. And it's quite hard to do anything about that. No, you're absolutely right. It is hard. It was much easier to stop people getting into the backs of lorries. You can use technology to uh, detect whether they're there. You could, you're on, you know, terra firma. You can actually deploy people to, and you can, to, to intervene, and you can also put up physical barriers to stop people uh, getting into the country in that way. But of course, when you're involving people floating, you know, small inadequate uh, sea craft onto the uh, onto the English Channel, it's much more difficult because as soon as they're afloat, it becomes a rescue operation. And what we've seen in the last uh, four or five years, an exponential rise in people traveling to the UK this way. This is totally unacceptable for any country. It's a breach of border control, uh, pure and simple. The organized crime gangs are making vast profits out of it. Uh, and it's entirely right that the government and the opposition should try and tackle this. But it's not easy. Um, and a lot of the ways that um, have been tried involving intelligence, use of the National Crime Agency, um, that is the way forward, but it needs more resources and it needs more efforts on their part to do it. Uh, there's nothing wrong in aspiring for that, but recently, as your previous correspondent said, I think the National Crime Agency went on record and said, this can't be something that can be tackled through enforcement alone. And, and just finally, John, is it also, I mean, we've got Keir Starmer, he's in The Hague today, at the headquarters of Europol, he's meeting Emmanuel Macron uh, next week. There's talk of trying to negotiate a sort of returns deal, which means some people who come to the UK legally will be sent back, but then it might mean that people came here through legal routes uh, instead. Is part of the problem here that one of the byproducts of Brexit and the idea of sort of cutting ties and so on is that sort of cooperation, uh, international cooperation, has become a dirty word? Well, we used to have something called the Dublin Agreement, which um, some people would argue was useful. Other people thought it was um, it was it was well intentioned, but it didn't really make a great deal of difference. And as a country, we've returned fewer and fewer people um, to other countries abroad over the last, say, ten years. We were we were sending uh, back uh, many, many thousands of people ten years ago, and it's that's reduced to a trickle. I think there are two things. When uh, the Prime Minister went to see Emmanuel Macron. Um, a few months ago, beginning of the year perhaps, uh, he asked whether there could be a returns agreement with France. And Macron said, no, this has to be a, an agreement with Europe. And so I think what Keir Starmer is now saying is that, well, let's go to Europe and see if we can get an agreement. In relation to returns, this opens up a whole new area of discussion and debate, because how many people uh, uh, would be returned? How many people would we uh, allow to arrive in the UK through safe and legal routes? And um, yes, it would have an impact on some of the smuggling, but I don't think it would stop it completely because there would have to be a limit. And beyond that limit, of course, then organised crime would step in again and offer the services they're, they're offering at the moment. John, really, really good to get your insight today. Thanks for that. It's John Vine there, former Chief Inspector of Borders and Immigration, looking at the practicalities of the policy being laid out by Keir Starmer. Very good morning to you, Matt Chorley, on at Times Radio, taking a look at Keir Starmer's plans to tackle illegal immigration, including, as he says, to smash the boats. Well, we've... Uh, sorry, not smash the boats, smash the gangs. Stop the boats, smash the gangs. Or, I mean, whatever. It's all interchangeable. So we've talked a bit about the practicalities of it. 
Let's turn our attention now to the politics of this policy. And Labour's not always had an easy time talking about immigration. Let's take you back to the Ed Miliband years, when he chiselled the words controls on immigration onto a big stone and also sold Labour Party mugs, which said the same thing, which caused a big row within Labour. Tough controls. It's a pledge from us. It's on the mug. And um, I'm hoping after the general election I can do a toast in that mug as we get on and change Britain for the better for the, for the future. I, um, I'm not responsible for all uh, Labour Party merchandise. And that was not... I didn't purchase... I didn't purchase one of those mugs myself, and I'm not particularly uh, proud of them. That was Andy Burnham there, uh, and then before that, uh, Ed Balls. Well, let's now speak to James Schneider, former Director of Strategic Communications for Jeremy Corbyn, to get his take on the the politics of this. Hi, James. Hi, how are you doing? I'm very well. I'm very well. Are you joining us this morning with a with a hot coffee in your controls on immigration mug? Uh, I am not. No. Um, I mean, we've, you've just been hearing from some experts how this macho talk from Starmer isn't terribly well thought through on the policy level. And I don't think it seemed terribly well thought through on either the political strategy or the communications level. I mean, you know, as a political strategy, you're driving up an issue without particularly believable solutions or very useful dividing lines with the Tories. James Schneider, uh, former uh, Director of Strategic Communications for uh, Jeremy Corbyn. Claire Ainsley is Director of the Progressive Policy Institute's Centre-Left Renewal Project. She's also uh, former Head of Policy for the Labour Party under uh, Keir Starmer. Hi, Claire. Hi there. I'm not sure what's happened to James. Uh, We'll try and find him later on. Uh, Claire, um, what do you make of this policy um, as in sort of policy terms, first of all, because clearly for your head of policy of the Labour Party, you need to come up with policy that works. Does it work as a policy before we come on to the politics? Yeah, and I think it is interesting to think about the proposals that Labour have come up with. Um, you've got a Labour opposition coming up with what looks like, to me, a really serious set of proposals and contrasting that with a government that seems to be governing by campaign mode. So it sort of says everything about... Uh, the mess that we're in at the moment. I mean, what Starmer and Yvette Cooper, Shadow Home Secretary, are putting forward today, to me, looks like a pretty seriously thought through plan from a number of different aspects about how you tackle this specific aspect of the criminal gangs. And I think the contrast that they're putting out in their proposals are that in order to tackle this problem which undoubtedly is a problem not just politically but a really serious problem and it and it could get worse you've got to get to the gangs that are the root cause of this and they're saying they would have a new security agreement they're talking about data sharing that's not been possible because of the government's botched brexit plans and redirecting resources that so that you have more uk officers posted at europol in contrast to the Tories, which have obviously vested much of the uh, publicity and the resources around this big barge, uh, around the press conferences and obviously the Rwanda plan. So I think there is a pretty big dividing line opening up here about how you actually tackle this. And I have to say, I I would give the team, the the Labour team credit for coming up with something which they know is going to be difficult um, politically but for giving it a real reset of this debate with some serious proposals that I think actually are more likely to be believed by the public uh, and be worked through by the time we come to the next election. 
Is there a risk, and I suppose this is always when you're coming up with policy in opposition and choosing when to put it out and so on, is there a risk that they, they've fallen into essentially a Tory trap, that Rishi Sunak chose to make this one of his five priorities, stopping the boats. He didn't say one of his five priorities was to bring down the extraordinarily high levels of, of legal migration, which is probably having a bigger impact on uh, people's everyday lives. You know, the number of people coming across the channel is actually very small compared to uh, the, 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 the high number uh, of net migration. But you sort of fall into the trap... They want to talk about stop the boats because it means they can talk about foreigners and Europe and Brexit and and, and all of that, and in and in in and making a big song and dance about this policy, which clearly has holes in it as as well as we were just hearing uh, before. That it just puts up in lights that the, the the Tories will be tougher. They'll talk tougher. They have got the big barge. They have got Rwanda, and actually you're you're sort of trying to fight them on their territory. I think Starmer and Labour are right to be on the front foot on this issue and uh, Starmer will be at this uh, global summit of the centre-left in Montreal um, tomorrow, I believe, and over the weekend, making the case for why the centre-left needs to be on the front foot on the issue. This is already an issue for voters, for sure. Uh, there was polling done by YouGov uh, this week for WI, uh, WPI strategy that showed that Immigration, asylum and immigration overall is about fourth. So it's it's in the top five of issues. But amongst key voter groups, particularly where Labour's need is narrower, I might say, in the Midlands, the north of England, um, it's actually the second issue for voters. So I think there is there is just no getting away from it. I also think this is going to potentially become more of an issue for politicians. So as you see people displaced by climate change and by global instability, you are going to see these movements of people. And I, and I think that if the centre-left and the Labour Party and others kind of get out of the way, you cede all of the territory to the political right and you've seen what happens. You have quite a hostile debate rather than, I think, what Labour is trying to do here, which is have a much more serious plan that acknowledges some of the realities that we're facing, doesn't just stand in front of a podium saying stop the boats and re- and every week we're seeing record numbers of crossings. I mean, it's a failing policy, but actually says let's do the hard graft, the negotiations, the agreements. Let's do that hard graft to actually tackle this problem at the root. So I strongly believe that Labour are doing the right thing by going on the front foot uh, and they should be supported and given credit for doing so. Um, and what about the uh, some of the headlines today? The front of the Daily Mail, uh, Labour ready to open door to EU's asylum seekers. Uh, they're talking about um, negotiating a return, an EU-wide returns agreement for asylum seekers who come to Britain. Keir Starmer acknowledges the quid pro quo of any deal uh, would, might mean accepting quotas of migrants from the EU, but says that's for, that's for later. That's for future negotiations with Brussels. If this is a proper, fully thought out plan to be taken seriously, doesn't Keir Starmer have to be honest with voters about that? That actually this does mean closer alignment with the EU, and it probably will mean uh, a lot of people, possibly even the same number of people coming here, but just under an organised plan rather than the chaotic situation we have at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I think that is the argument he's basically putting forward is saying that you either have, you either do this in a controlled and managed way. And this country has always taken a certain number of refugees. If they've got a legal right to be here, you need to process their claims. And if they haven't, then you need to be comfortable that that does involve uh, removing them from uh, from the border. So Starmer is basically saying we choose to do a negotiated 
uh, controlled, managed route rather than that chaos that we are seeing. And I'm not surprised why people are objecting to people crossing the channel in such unsafe ways, but also in a way that means we can't manage it either. I mean, why is it good politics in good sense? to put people on this barge that's costing £18 million a year when you could actually put those resources into enforcing the agreements you've got. So I think this is a pretty, um, yeah, a pretty mature, serious plan. I think it's the right way for the country. I saw Starmer this morning, you know, outside, Joe, they got just issued their statement from Europol this morning. I mean, he looked like a prime minister. I thought it's only a shame you've got to wait, uh, wait until a general election till we get the chance to, to do that. Because I think... Um, they're politically on the right territory, but this is about showing the kinds of politics that I think the country is crying out for, which is a bit more of a long-term plan. Okay, Claire, thanks very much for that. Claire Ainsley there, uh, former head of policy for uh, Keir Starmer, the Labour Party, now at the Progressive Policy Institute. Uh, James Schneider is here, former director of strategic communications for Jeremy Corbyn. This is a mature, serious plan, James. Well, I wish it were, and I wish it were more of what Claire was saying, because what she was saying sounded quite good. It just, it, you know, th- this isn't what has been put forward either in the policy, which is uh, pretty, pretty thin and pretty half-baked, and uh, or the comms, which has gone in very hard on the basically similar framing to the Tories with smash the boats, smash the gangs, whatever, trying, trying, to, be, trying to be tough, not talking uh, in the way in which Claire was. And leaving yourself totally open to the dividing lines that the Tories and the right want anyway, because he, rather than saying with his chest, we need to come to an agreement with Europe, that will mean that we're swapping uncontrolled um, uh, and unsafe flows of refugees for controlled and safe flows of refugees. Uh, and to do that, we need to have an agreement with Europe. He's sort of slightly hidden that, which then gives you know, more, uh, more power to the Daily Mail splash and, and the other attacks by the Tories saying that he you know, basically wants to go back into Europe. Is it politically, would it be better if he just left this as an issue? It, albeit that there might then be questions about you don't even have a plan. But if you're 20 points ahead in the polls, this feels like potentially wading into this might just actually knock the edge off rather than, than boosting it. I mean, Labour don't have a plan for quite a lot of things. That's part of the, I mean, that's basically part of the strategy to stand there and point at the Tories, what a mess they've made of the country and say, in comparison, we look, we look better. And, um, you know, either you do a really comprehensive proper policy where you say exactly what you're going to do and how you're going to do it and you, you fight for it on terms, which isn't what Starmer has done today, or you don't drive something where you're basically losing up the political agenda, and and unfortunately, this drives something where Labour's losing up the political agenda, James, without good, providing solution. James, good to speak to you. Thanks so much for that, James Schneider, there, former director of strategic communications uh, for Jeremy Corbyn. Um, lots of you getting in touch about this. Lots of you getting in touch. Uh, uh, somebody says, I've worked with Border Force and Emergency Response stuff, and they are hands down the most annoying jobs worst of all the agencies. Andrew in Henfield says, the Brexiteers told us that taking back control of our borders. Strange that before Brexit, we didn't have small boats. After, we have the small, we have, the, we have control, the problem has exploded. I don't think the government wants to solve this problem as it keeps this in the headlines and they can hit the opposition about immigration, helping them, they think, uh, they can save a few seats in the next election. And someone else says, the increasing influence of more right-wing politicians in Europe who are very vocal about migration and have given 
And good, the only route to the UK is through Europe. I suspect that migration control will become a self-fulfilling prophecy. And that's all we've got time for on today's episode of the podcast. Don't forget you can get in touch at any point by emailing me, matt at times.radio, especially if you're still cross about Rory Stewart. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.